The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Listener, what do you fear? We all experience fear to some degree or another throughout our lives. The fear I'm talking about today is the fear of being convicted of a crime you didn't commit. It's often a popular theme among literary writers, and even Hollywood. It's a great way to bring conflict to a protagonist. It's been the focus of books such as Gone Girl and movies like The Green Mile or Shawshank Redemption. It's not as rare as you might think. One of the greatest tragedies in the criminal justice system is the conviction of a person for a crime he or she did not commit. It's often the result of what has been come to be known as junk science. It's where a paid expert will get up on the stand and, for the right amount of money, they will bend and manipulate and even sometimes change evidence to create a narrative where you are a heartless, soulless, evil murderer. Think it can't happen to you? Well, statistically, you're probably right. I bet I could find an expert witness to say otherwise. Now, let's be honest for a minute. What do you think when you see someone like Scott Peterson or Chris Watts when they show up on our news feeds giving a tearful interview, asking for the return of their missing wives? I mean, besides that they are guilty as hell. What else do you think about? Do you ever stop to ask, what if they're actually innocent? What happens when it turns out you're wrong? What happens when the vision of hindsight means you have a hand in putting away an innocent person? Do you do the right thing and tell someone? Do you set things right at the expense of your own reputation and livelihood? Or do you double down, knowing most of the time, you are on the right side of justice? In 2010, North Carolina Attorney General Roy Cooper ordered two retired FBI agents to conduct an independent investigation into the State Bureau of Investigation's crime lab. When they finished their report... The results showed the corruption of an entire crime lab for at least the better part of 16 years. Take a moment to process that, listener. 16 years of corruption. The corruption ran deep. SBI agents withheld exculpatory evidence or distorted evidence in more than 230 cases. Three of those cases resulted in executions. This isn't an isolated incident, either. It's been reported nationwide in hundreds of cases. It's cases like these that keep organizations like the Innocence Project busy exonerating the wrongfully convicted. Often, they are exonerated through DNA evidence, because DNA doesn't lie. Except when it does. DNA can lie when just one person decides you're guilty, and they're going to see justice done at any cost. 
Listener, today's episode involves a missing wife, a missing baby, and a husband who gave news interviews repeatedly asking for the return of his wife and son. How do you think this case turns out for the husband? Now, let's get on with it. And so it begins. Our case begins in Catasauqua, Pennsylvania, when Andrew Katrinak arrives home to an empty house. At first unconcerned, he sits down and watches the game on TV. However, as time passed without any news, Andy began making phone calls looking for Joanne. He knew she was planning on doing some Christmas shopping with his mom, so he called her house first to find out if Joanne dropped her off back at home yet. His mother told him Joanne never showed up, and had assumed she had changed her mind about shopping that day. Now Andy was really concerned. At 10.40pm, he called 911 to report his family missing. Andy sounded confused more than concerned when he called to report his young family missing. He told the responding officers his family had been missing since 2pm that afternoon. His wife and new baby were supposed to go to his mother's house a few blocks away to pick her up for a day of Christmas shopping. However, Joanne and baby Alex never showed up. Andy was perplexed having just discovered his downstairs basement door had been tampered with and jimmied open. When Officer Joseph Kiska showed up at 10.42pm, they were met by Andy who handed them a picture of his wife. He quickly described her tan 1992 Toyota Corolla, which was also missing. It seems his wife and son had headed out to meet his mother, but it never showed up. Andy was a big guy, standing six foot two with classic handsome features and feathered blonde hair that reached the bottom of the collar of his shirt. The picture of his wife showed a petite woman of just five foot four with big dark eyes and long dark hair. Beyond their difference in size, they also had differences in age. Joanne was 15 years younger than her almost 40 year old husband. In 1994, this age difference wasn't looked at as significantly as it might be today. Andy told the police when he came home, his house looked the same as when he left that morning. There was no sign of a struggle and he assumed his wife was caught in traffic or still at his mother's home visiting. He stated he came home, turned on the television, and read the newspaper to pass the time. But as the early evening became late evening, he began calling around looking for her. These were the days before cell phones. After making a few calls and failing to locate his wife, he decided to check the oil levels in the tank located in his basement. It was then he realized the basement door was standing ajar and someone had broken into his home. Later, there would be some dispute on whether Andy mentioned the basement being broken into now or when he made a subsequent call. However, what is not in dispute is the fact that the police officer only stayed 18 minutes pursuant to the report they filed regarding the incident. The report never mentioned seeing any signs of a break-in on the first visit to the house. The officer also never declared the home a crime scene, nor does he mention a burglary in his report. Nowadays, if the police were to find a missing new mother and her baby just 10 days before Christmas, it would be plastered all over the news and internet before morning especially when the parties involved are both considered magazine cover worthy. Later that night, in the early morning hours of December 16, 1994, Joanne Katrinak's sister, Peggy, also called police at 2.45 a.m. to let them know that Joanne's car had been found abandoned in a parking lot less than 50 yards away from the house. This time, Officer Harold Kleiner and Officer Gary D'Angelo responded to the call. They noted Joanne's car sitting in the parking lot of McCarty's bar. 
Seemed odd no one had noticed it earlier, given the close proximity to Katrinak's back door. As the officers arrive, they find Andy Katrinak and Joanne's parents, Sally and David O'Connor, and Joanne's sister, Peggy. They immediately tell the officers that the car had been backed into a space and that Joanne couldn't accomplish that feat, which was proof that she wasn't the last person to drive the car. They were sure that finding the car so close to the house meant that something sinister happened to Joanne and baby Alex. Andy bluntly states he believes someone abducted his wife and son. The officers, appearing skeptical, said it looked like the car had been there for some time, as all the doors were locked and it was covered in a layer of frost and the engine was cold. They couldn't see any visible signs of damage or dents or broken glass, not any dirt or debris in the wheel wells of the car. Andy handed them the keys and told them no one had been inside the car since they found it. The officer opened the car, made a cursory view, no signs of foul play, no signs of struggle or blood, or dirt or mud. The car was in pristine condition, including the baby seat in the front passenger area. According to the police report on file, Andy noted that a can of mace, which was normally in the console, was lying on the front passenger floor. Other than that, the car was in the same position usually used by his 5'4 wife. Joanne's sister Peggy concurred that the seat was in Peggy's preferred position. The officers then opened the trunk, which also appeared to be clean and neat, with a folded baby stroller inside. To the police on call, there was nothing suspicious about the car that would suggest foul play, or that the car had been used in the abduction of Joanne and baby Alex. The officers again, for the second time that night, failing to secure a crime scene, released the car back into Andy's possession and told him he was free to drive it the 50 yards back to his home. Andy was stunned by this turn of events and refused to move the car, stating he didn't want to destroy any possible evidence. The officers left without impounding the vehicle and failing to know anything suspicious on their police report documenting the event. Later, Andy Katrinak and the public would be very critical of the police for this indifference to evidence. At 5 a.m., Andy picked up the receiver of the recordless phone in his bedroom and couldn't get a dial tone. That was odd because earlier in the night, he had used the phone in the kitchen to call family and friends, as well as the police. Andy decided to investigate the deadline and went to the basement, through two partitioned rooms to the very front of the house. It was there he found two dangling phone wires, which had almost been hidden by insulation, tucked up under the ceiling floor joists. The phone line had been cut. Apparently, there were two phone lines into the house, and the easier-to-find line hadn't been cut. But this far-away hidden line leading to the bedroom was the only line to be cut, meaning whoever abducted Joanne and her baby didn't realize they needed to cut a second phone line. With this new discovery, Andy called 911 for a third time that night. The same two officers were dispatched, and Andy noted that the phone his wife usually uses in the bedroom is a phone line that had been cut. He explains he thought the battery was dead, but out of curiosity, he decided to go into the basement and check the line. The police report states that Andy Katrinak called for a third time that night to report a cut phone line and a tampered with door. The report for this call also states that Officer D'Angelo noticed a, quote, hasp on the outer basement door, loose in nature. That next morning, after having been called to the Katrinak house on three separate occasions, first for a missing wife, second for a found car, and a third time for signs of a break-in and a tampered phone line, the police were finally on alert. The police weren't sure if Joanne was the victim of an abduction or if she had staged the house and car herself to look like an abduction. 
In fact, one of the officers told Joanne's mother that it was possible her daughter had decided to, quote, run away with someone. Joanne's parents were terrified and appalled by the authorities' lack of concern. They were equally incensed when an officer suggested that maybe Andy did something to cause his wife and child's disappearance. The O'Connors found this assertion equally ludicrous. Later that day, Mrs. O'Connor would call the investigating officers and insist that her daughter had been abducted as evidenced by the signs of foul play. She also insisted that Andy had nothing to do with her daughter and grandson's disappearance. Andy treated her daughter like a queen, and her daughter had no reason to want to leave or walk out on her marriage. Mrs. O'Connor insisted the police should forget about Andy and concentrate on Joanne's first husband. She insisted her first husband was a violent man who was enraged when Joanne divorced him. The investigator told her absent any new leads, he would do nothing but take a wait-and-see approach. Convinced the police weren't doing their job, Joanne's sister, Peggy, called the FBI field office in Philadelphia and reported her sister Joanne and her three-month-old nephew Alex had been abducted. She also gave them the name of Joanne's first husband as a suspect. Less than an hour later, Sally O'Connor and Andy Katrinak appear at the police station demanding action. Detective Grube took Andy's official statement, where he explained that he had left for work that morning at 6.30 a.m. and returned home 12 hours later to find Joanne and Alex and their missing car. Again, he explained he wasn't worried until around 8 p.m. when he began making phone calls to family and friends using the phone with the uncut line. Andy's mom... Veronica Katrinak told her son she had spoken to Joanne at 1.15 p.m. that afternoon when they had made plans for Joanne to pick her up for some Christmas shopping. When she failed to show up, Veronica called, but no one picked up the phone. Assuming Joanne changed her mind, she went about her day. Detective Grube decided to escort Andy and Mrs. O'Connor back to the house to look at the alleged crime scene. Group took note of the area where the basement was accessible by a short flight of stairs leading down from a slab of concrete that doubled as a back porch area for the home. Just next to the porch was a gravel area where Joanne usually parked her car. The house was located in a mixed-use neighborhood where both residential and commercial businesses all within the same city block. Andy immediately brought attention to the fact that the basement door, which was down a small flight of stairs, had once contained a large window. The window had been long ago boarded up with several layers of plywood. One screwed in place from inside, and several similarly attached to the outside make it secure and impossible to gain access. As Grube approached the door, he saw visible signs of an alleged break-in that the other officers had failed to mention in their three previous written reports. It appeared that the padlock on the adjacent door jam had been pried off. D'Angelo, in a previous report, noted that the lock appeared, quote, Loose in nature. Didn't mention that it had been forcibly pried away from the door, nor did the previous officers notice that the adjacent window covered by plywood appeared to have had 19 of the 20 screws holding up the first layer loosened. None of the previous officers had noted these obvious signs of a break-in in their written reports. Had Andy tampered with the doors to stage signs of a break-in so the police would take the reports of his missing wife and child more seriously... Or had Andy tampered with the doors to look like an attempt at break-in to sway suspicion away from himself? Andy was very helpful in offering up theories of how his family was taken. First, he believed the kidnapper first tried to gain entry through the window by removing 19 of the 20 screws with a cordless drill. Maybe the last screw was never removed because it was stripped. 
Or maybe it was never removed because it was, at this point, the intruder decided the door with one flimsy lock was an easier way to gain access than removing 20 screws from multi-layers of plywood over a window. I guess we'll never know, because neither makes sense. The basement was a confined space with dirt floors, which was unsuitable for storage or habitability. Upon entering the basement, Detective Group noticed he had to go past the main phone line, which was easily visible and uncut before passing through two partitioned areas which was hidden in the dark unlit recesses of the basement. There wasn't any natural or artificial light before you would come upon the area which the phone wires had been cut. So, if the intruder was hoping to cut off Joanne's ability to call for help, he sure did luck out cutting the phone that was almost impossible to find, unless you knew it was already there. Ironically, instead of substantiating his theory of an intruder, Andy was instead highlighting himself as a suspect. The thing about the line is that, even though it had been reported just a few hours earlier to responding officers, it had already been repaired and spliced back together by Andy Katrinak. Next, Andy led Detective Grube over to McCarty's parking lot to look at his wife's car. After viewing the car and confirming the canister of mace in the front passenger side floor, Andy mentioned that several people had noticed a strange black truck in the area throughout the day. He thought this was important to mention because Joanne's ex-husband drove a black truck. This was the second time Andy mentioned Joanne's ex-husband. He also mentioned his ex-girlfriend, Patricia Rohrer, known as Patty. He explained that Patty had called the house on December 12th, just a few days earlier, and Joanne screamed at her and told her not to call the house anymore. Those were Andy's two suspects in his wife's disappearance. Now it was up to the police to solve the crime and bring back Andy's family. Attention from the media had just begun. The press portrayed Andy as a sad and sympathetic figure, and the police as incompetent and uninterested. This unwanted attention prompted Detective Grube to call the Pennsylvania State Police, hereafter referred to as the PSP, and requested their assistance in this case. Trooper Robert Egan thought the case sounded important and agreed to meet Grube at the crime scene the next day for evidence collection. The PSP had trained forensic technicians and access to state-of-the-art forensic laboratories. The PSP viewed the crime scene as suspicious and they found Andy's demeanor off-putting and unsettling. The thing that stood out the most was the calmness of the husband and his placid and unemotional demeanor. Andy never seemed distraught or upset and never pled for investigators to find his wife, which Trooper Egan always found odd, even years later. The other thing that Egan found unsettling is that while authorities were still trying to confirm there was in fact a crime, Andy already had the crime all figured out complete with suspects. Andy wasn't doing himself any favors if he was trying to look innocent. On the 17th, Andy was presented with a consent to search warrant, which he readily agreed to and signed. The Katrinak house was well maintained, cleaned, and orderly. There didn't seem to be any sides of forceful abduction. The crime techs on the scene took a hammer with rust stains as evidence and also noticed some stains on the flooring which were reddish, brown in nature. They also took samples from this area. Other than dusting for prints and taking photos of the pry marks on the basement hatch, there wasn't much else to find of evidentiary value. Because nothing appeared to be missing and there were no signs of struggle, they ruled out robbery. However, with Andy already securing the basement door and reattaching the phone lines before police arrived, it was likely he would have tampered with their ability to find any fingerprints or other forensic evidence. Trooper Egan took possession of Joanne's car and had it sent to the crime lab. 
The Investigation During Andy's official police interview with the PSP, Andy describes first meeting Joanne in April 1992 in a bar in Allentown. He was 37 and she was just 22 years old. Their first meeting was love at first sight. Despite being a confirmed bachelor his entire life, he knew he wanted to marry Joanne. He moved her into his home on Front Street in February of 1993. Two months later, they were married. Despite having a brand new baby, Andy described his marriage as perfect and still in the honeymoon stage. Andy denied to police that he had any marital problems, even insisted they never had a fight. He stated that Joanne was extremely happy and Alex was very much wanted in a planned child. In the days leading up to Joanne's disappearance, Andy described events as normal. The night before the alleged abduction, Andy fed the baby while Joanne made dinner. Later, they watched TV and Joanne mentioned her plan to go Christmas shopping the next day with Andy's mother. When he left the next morning for work, Joanne and the baby were both still in bed. Andy drove to the home of his best friend's house where he was hired to put an addition onto their home. His father, Andrew Katrinak Sr., was working along with him that day. Andy's alibi was his father and his two best friends. They all agreed that Andy never left, not even for lunch. Next, Andy described the events when he came home. Believing Joanne was caught in traffic or still out shopping, he recalled calling Joanne's sister, Peggy, at 7.30 and 8 p.m., going into the basement to check the oil and finding evidence of a break-in. He describes finding the door ajar, but it didn't concern him at the time, so he went and got his tools and secured the door. This version of events is in direct conflict with the way the night had unfolded, according to three separate police reports filed from the night before. Already, Andy's story had inconsistencies. Andy, still unconcerned, called his mom, who told him the first time that Joanne hadn't showed up for their shopping trip. Instead of calling police, he called Peggy back, who was so concerned she stated her and her parents were heading over immediately. Despite the obvious concern from his in-laws, Andy still wasn't worried enough to call the police. Instead, he begins by calling local hospitals. Next, he calls the PSP to inquire about any roadway accidents. The police encouraged him to call the local Catasauqua police and report his wife and son missing. It is only then when he calls the police for the first time. When his in-laws arrived, they all went out walking the neighborhood and that is when they discovered Joanne's car. It was oddly parked in the parking lot, just yards away from the back of the house. He described finding Joanne's car and the police telling him he could take it home and his refusal to do so because he didn't want to tamper with evidence from the kidnapper. Later, he discovered the hidden cut phone wire when the cordless phone that Joanne uses wasn't working. Andy also admitted to doing something else. He said when the police left, he went back to Joanne's car and sat inside it so he could, quote, play detective and look for evidence. Next, Veronica Katrinak, despite having a strained relationship with Joanne, explained they were planning on going shopping that day. She talked to Joanne on the phone at 1.15, which meant the phone line couldn't have been cut yet. Joanne said she would pick her up in 15 minutes, but at 3.15, when she still hadn't shown, Veronica assumed Joanne changed her mind or went without her. A neighbor mentioned hearing two gunshots in the early morning hours of December 15th, followed by two more about 30 seconds apart. The neighbor thought they sounded like small caliber bullets 
and came from the direction of the Katrinak house. Former male co-worker of Joanne's called the police to state they had previously worked together, and he last saw Joanne and the baby on Tuesday, December 13th, just two days before her disappearance in New Jersey where they had lunch together. He described her as happy and in good spirits. Though the police were not ready to call this an abduction, the family felt differently. They started conducting interviews with local press similar to what we have seen recently with Scott Peterson and Chris Watts. They also printed up hundreds of flyers, which clearly stated Joanne and baby Alex had been abducted from their own home in broad daylight. Andy also invited the press over to film the broken cellar door and held numerous impromptu interviews on his back porch. Any of this sounding familiar, listener? Andy addressed the press in a calm manner, without signs of nervousness, sharing his theory that Joanne had been abducted from behind their home, forced into her own car, and driven 50 feet to McCarty's, where she was transferred into the kidnapper's possible black truck. Told the press it was later when he noticed the signs of a break-in that he started to panic. Of course, the police know this isn't true, because he told them at the first sign of a break-in, he repaired the door, went upstairs and watched some TV waiting on Joanne. In fact, the police found his calm demeanor when describing his wife's disappearance to be unnerving and disingenuous. Andy told the press that, when they commented on his seemingly unaffected demeanor, quote, The way I look at it, if I lose my edge, and I lose the ability to do things for her, there's nobody to do what you have to do. Although the police made it clear that Andy was their prime suspect, Joanne's family made it clear to the press they directed all of their anger at the police department for their failure to call Joanne and Alex's disappearance and abduction. Andy and his in-laws, the O'Connors, had contracted authorities in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey and spoke to numerous media outlets in both states. They also continually contacted the FBI pressing for their involvement, insisting it was a multi-state kidnapping. Group told the press he couldn't say much, but described it as, quote, Not your typical missing person case. There are so many unanswered questions, and it's a little strange. It's very strange. You have to understand, the family is looking at this emotionally. They are grabbing at anything. They actually feel if they call all the news media and police departments, this is going to mean their daughter is going to be returned quicker. An investigation takes time. We certainly don't want this to go a long time, but it could go on for weeks, months, even years. The media were giving this case all of their attention. On December 18, 1994, under intense pressure from both the media and Joanne's family, Catasaqua authorities officially relinquished control of the case to the PSP. Their first order of business was to talk to the two witnesses Andy had identified as seeing a black truck like the one owned by Joanne's ex-husband in the vicinity. When the PSP followed up on the two witnesses, they corrected authorities and told them that Andy had told them about a black truck being seen in the area. Was Andy trying to create a narrative and tamper with the witness? Was he just grasping at straws, hoping to get his wife and child back? PSP Trooper Koya began processing Joanne's car. He described it as the cleanest vehicle inside and out, including the undercarriage that he had ever processed. He described the interior as immaculate. Tucked behind the driver's seat, they found Joanne's set of car keys. Using a special bright light, Trooper Koya began looking for foreign fibers or hairs. On the driver's side seat back, he discovered a grouping of six dirty blonde hairs. 
which upon first inspection looked like Andy's hair. This made sense because Andy had sat in the car on the night his wife was abducted and played detective. Trooper Koya even mentioned to the other trooper that, quote, Andy must drive this car. Under the instruction of forensic scientist Dr. Thomas Jensen, a civilian expert working with the police, Koya collected the hairs on post-it notes. This method of collecting was highly uncommon, and in fact, it had never been used by the PSP. The post-it notes containing the hair were then placed inside evidence envelopes, which as a part of the chain of custody were hand-delivered to the PSP crime lab. The car was absent of any fingerprints, including Joanne's fingerprints, and even though Andy decided to, quote, play detective, his fingerprints weren't found inside the car either. The police asked Andy to take a polygraph test. Andy, like Chris Watts before him, did take a polygraph test. And like Chris Watts, he failed. More than once. They started by reading Andy his rights and officially informing him he was a suspect in the disappearance of his wife and son. When they asked him if he were withholding any evidence, he failed the questions. It was during this time that Andy explained that he wasn't sure if the loose and 19 screws were tampered with or not. He only said they were tampered with because he wanted his wife's abduction to be taken seriously. The police also doubted Andy's assertion that the phone wires were cut and thought perhaps those two were cut to help the police take his wife's abduction seriously. To clear things up, they asked Andy to take a second polygraph, to which he readily agreed. Andy wanted to clear his name so the real kidnapper could be found. This time, when Andy was asked if he lied about any part of the story regarding the disappearance of his wife and son, he again showed signs of deception. After a difficult interrogation, Andy agreed to do a third polygraph with the FBI. The results of this test are unknown. The media were very critical of the police for failing to take Joanne's car into custody. They praised Andy for insisting on it being tested for evidence. What the media didn't know was that Andy had played detective looking for the abductor's wallet inside the car that night. Unfortunately, in an attempt to help, Andy had compromised all three crime scenes. The basement door, the cut phone line, and Joanne's car. It seemed Andy was his own worst enemy during this investigation. Joanne's ex-husband contacted police to let them know he hadn't been in contact with her in three years. In fact, he didn't even know she had gotten married or that she had a baby. He provided police with an alibi and was quickly eliminated as a suspect. While the police still believed Andy was their most viable suspect, Joanne's little sister was just as convinced it was her ex-husband, who she insisted was abusive. She was sure the PSP had it wrong, despite clearing him with his alibi. That left Andy's ex-girlfriend to clear. Since she lived in another state more than 500 miles away, that shouldn't be too difficult. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts.
and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Andy and Joanne Katrinak. Andy, who was born in Pennsylvania on September 20th, 1954, was the second of two children to Veronica Katrinak and Andrew Katrinak Sr., he was a tall, broad-shouldered kid who played football in high school, was popular and good-natured. He got along well with his classmates. After graduation, Andy moved to San Diego, California, where he worked as a boxer for a time. Later, he moved back to Lehigh Valley and started his own construction company, while also working as an assistant boxing coach at Lehigh University. Andy dated several women, none too seriously. All described him as treating them like a princess and the nicest person they had ever dated. As mentioned previously, Andy was a confirmed bachelor up until he met Joanne. Despite the 15-year age difference, they were both instantly smitten with each other. Joanne, born October 11, 1968, was half Irish and half Italian, and favored her mother's side of the family and looks. She had thick dark hair and big dark eyes, and as they often say, a smile that lit up a room. As the baby in the family, her parents and siblings doted on her. Her family and friends described her as a spitfire with a bad temper and no shrinking violet. In her short 23 years, she had already married and divorced and had a string of serious but short-lived relationships with older and sometimes abusive men. And that all ended when Andy met Joanne in a bar one night. Joanne would talk about Andy constantly, and when her friends and co-workers finally met him, they weren't very impressed. They thought Andy seemed cold and aloof and behaved as if he were better than all of them. Within six months of their meeting, Joanne was already planning for their future and moved into the duplex on Front Street in Catasauqua, owned by his family. On May 29, 1993, Andy and Joanne were married in a small civil ceremony. Despite not being able to afford a formal reception, Joanne was still in full wedding gown, and Andy wore a tuxedo for the event. Finances were an issue for the couple, and Andy, unlike Joanne, wasn't very responsible when it came to money. In fact, his credit was so bad he had to have his phone hooked up in the name of his ex-girlfriend, whom he had lived with in another state five years earlier. They also lived in a house owned by his family because he was unable to qualify for a mortgage. Additionally, he still owed a large sum of money in back taxes to the IRS. 
Spotty credit might be understandable for a young couple both in their early 20s like Joanne, but Andy was almost 40 years old. On August 29, 1994, Joanne gave birth to her son, Alex Martin Katrinak. Friends of Joanne said she seemed a little depressed after having the baby, and said Andy was having a tough time adjusting to life with a new baby. In fact, he had taken to sleeping in the empty apartment upstairs as the baby was keeping him up at night. Friends of Joanne said Andy seemed trouble and remained distanced throughout their visit. Joanne was on unemployment in the amount of $187 every two weeks, yet they were still struggling to make ends meet. Also, Joanne, at just 23 years old, was experiencing cabin fever, according to her friends. She was a previous hard partier and spent the past year either pregnant or with a newborn. In the addition of the struggles of any new relationship and a new baby, Joanne was also having a hard time with family. She described her parents and her older sister Peggy as smothering, and the person who irritated Joanne the most was Andy's mother, Veronica Katrinak. In fact, she told friends that she couldn't stand her, and things had only gotten worse since the baby was born. Joanne had even complained to Andy's sister that their mom was becoming a, quote, big problem, and she didn't want her around her new baby. Even Andy confirmed to police that Joanne disliked his mother, so it was surprising that she had agreed to pick her up that day to go shopping. Despite these issues, no one who knew Joanne thought it was possible she had taken her baby and left Andy. They believed that foul play was involved in her disappearance. While Joanne's family was insistent her ex-husband had something to do with her disappearance, some of Joanne's friends and ex-co-workers thought it was more likely that Andy had something to do with her disappearance. A few days after Joanne's disappearance, friends of hers went over to the Front Street townhome to offer Andy their emotional support. When they arrived, he was lounging on the couch watching a football game. They tried to come up with theories on Joanne and Alex's disappearance. Andy immediately got irritated they were interrupting his game. They said they felt uncomfortable and described his behavior as strange, emotional, and suspicious. They also remarked that Andy was taking Joanne and Alex's disappearance unusually easy. It wasn't only the police and the press who found Andy cold and aloof. His neighbors found his behavior odd as well. One neighbor described Andy as unusually composed and speaking of his missing wife and son without any signs of emotional distress. Another said Andy looked a little collective for someone who just lost his wife and son. The police had a suspect, they just weren't sure they had a crime. The only thing Andy said remotely negative about his wife is that she was, quote, a typical Italian woman who could be rude and inconsiderate and make others mad with her behavior. Had Joanne taken Alex and left on her own accord, did her husband harm her? Did her ex-husband harm her despite his alibi? Or did her current husband harm her? The police were doing their best to follow the trail. However, what little evidence they had led them straight back to Andy. Andy's insistence that an abduction had taken place in broad daylight in an active residential and commercial district during lunchtime without anyone seeing seemed highly unlikely. After their investigation began, Joanne didn't sound like a meek person who'd willingly go with someone who was a danger to both herself and her new baby without causing a scene. If she had been abducted and she believed her baby was in danger, why were there no signs of a struggle inside or outside her home? The inconsistencies were piling up. Sometimes Andy said he left at 6 p.m. and other times 6.30 p.m. 
Andy was working with his father that day, who gave him an alibi until 6 p.m., although Andy's mom stated her husband came home at 3.30 p.m. that day. Andy told the police he was unconcerned when he first came home, and told the press he immediately knew something was wrong and his family had been taken. He stated he searched the entire neighborhood before calling police, yet failed to find Joanne's car less than 50 feet from his back door. He had failed questions on three lie detector tests and had compromised three potential crime scenes. The suspicious behavior, along with the statistical likelihood that the husband is usually the strongest suspect, were starting to stack up. Andy's alibi was comprised of his mother, his father, and his best friends. Andy's father claimed when he saw the basement door, the plywood was completely removed and lying on the ground. However, the police reports contradict this, as they didn't even notice the loosened screws until the next day when Detective Grube arrived. They would have noticed if the plywood were completely removed. That just didn't happen. Pursuant to the police reports, the screws weren't even tampered with until after Officer D'Angelo inspected them at 5.30 a.m., when he only noticed the latch loose in nature. Reaching a dead end and tired of many press conferences being held by Andy and his in-laws, the police and FBI held a joint press conference on December 22, 1994, asking the public for help. They said while Joanne and Alex may have been abducted, they also may have just walked away, so any sighting of the two were welcomed. Despite leaving his wife and baby sleeping in the bed when he left, Andy was able to give a detailed accounting of what his wife was wearing that day, down to jeans and a brown leather coat. One of the first tips from the public was from a man parked by the train tracks near Joanne's house, who saw a woman who looked like Joanne, carrying a baby, being dragged into the woods by a large, dark man. A search of this area came up empty. Dozens of sightings of Joanne and baby Alex had them in restaurants, airports, hitchhiking, sunbathing, and shopping. Meanwhile, now that Joanne's ex-husband had been cleared, Andy came up with another suspect. It was a man we will call Frank, who had once threatened to kill him for interfering in his relationship with Andy's ex-girlfriend, Patricia Rohrer. Patty, as she is known to her friends, had been badly beaten up by Frank, with black eyes and a bleeding head wound when she called Andy to come take her to the hospital. Because at the time, Andy didn't have a phone at the Front Street house, he took Patty to a payphone so she could call her mother. He also helped Patty file a complaint with the PSP against Frank, in addition to standing guard while Patty retrieved her belongings from their home. Frank had just been arrested by police when he turned around and threatened to get even with Andy. After a short investigation, it would be discovered that Frank was already in jail when Andy came to take her to the hospital, so the alleged threat never happened the way Andy described, if at all. In fact, Frank denied he ever made a threat. As the holidays and months passed, Andy began contacting television stations, hoping to keep interest in his wife and son's abduction. He even contacted the television show, America's Most Wanted, and hoped they would cover the story. It wouldn't be until April 9, 1995, that the answer to his family's whereabouts would become known. Joanne and Alex are found. On a farm located in Heidelberg Township, approximately 15 miles from Catasauqua, farmer noticed a heap of trash in a field surrounded by dense trees that he planned to plow through on his tractor. As he approached, he saw jeans, a blue shirt, 
boots, arm, hair, and a face. He immediately left the site to call the state troopers. Because the police cruiser couldn't make it through the fields, the farmer drove trooper Thomas Mace to the body, which was lying on its back with a baby on its chest. Joanne and Alex Katrinak had finally been found. Under a thin layer of leaves was Joanne's body, face up, knees bent, her right leg tucked under her left, her right arm at a 45-degree angle, her left hand still wearing her gold wedding band. Just as Andy described, she was wearing a brown leather jacket, blue jeans, black hiking boots, and her blue jeans were pulled down below the right hip, revealing a pair of red satin underwear. On the left side of her stomach lay baby Alex. His arms stretched out over his mother, his legs dangling. In yellow jammies, inside bright blue sleeper with matching socks. The body was 200 feet in from the intersection, not visible from the road. It was contained within a dense strip of woods about 250 feet wide. The area was only accessible from two areas, either from an old logging trail on one side or an old railroad bed from the other. Either access point would be difficult for a killer to drag two bodies. More than likely, Joanne carried her baby into this spot before an unknown assailant killed her. The railroad bed was only accessible to a four-wheel drive, joggers, horseback riders, or ATVs. Fifty feet from the body lay Alex's favorite toy, a blue rattle. The Evidence It didn't take long for the crime scene investigators from the PSP and the FBI to arrive. The first thing they noticed was a ragged, torn fingernail lying on Joanne's chest that appeared to have flesh and dried blood attached. It looked like the killer may have left behind his DNA. Carefully, the fingernail was removed and placed into evidence envelopes. Next, they removed baby Alex, who was lying skin to skin with his mother. The baby's tiny head left a perfect indentation in Joanne's flesh. Partially hidden under Joanne's body was a broken gold bracelet a piece of gray duct tape, and a fresh cigarette butt. After they removed the body, they continued to collect evidence from the field. Fifteen hours later, they had very little evidence. No shell casings, no footprints, and no fingerprints. They did have several hairs entwined in the fabric of Alex's diaper bag, one of which was long and blonde and similar to the blonde hair found in Joanne's car. There was also hair in Joanne's hand, which was darker. The police couldn't notify Andy right away as he was staying in a campground in Louisiana following up on a tip from a psychic on the location of his wife's body. The PSP contacted Louisiana law enforcement to find him and give him the news. Andy flew to Lehigh Valley International Airport the next morning where his father picked him up and they both embraced and openly wept. brutality of the crime hit the community hard. It's hard to wrap your head around such a horrific crime. The community wanted justice. The autopsy showed that Joanne had been shot once in the face with a 22 caliber bullet and bludgeoned in the head at least 19 times. The defensive wounds on her body showed how hard she fought for her life and the life of her son. She had a severely bruised leg and her middle finger was fractured. There were no signs of sexual assault and no sign of bodily fluids. 
Each of her 19 wounds actively bled, so she was likely beaten before she was shot. The manner of death was homicide. The cause was a bullet wound to the face and blunt force trauma to the head. There were no injuries to the baby, no wounds and no sign of violence. He was either suffocated or left to die from exposure. The pressure was on to find the callous and heartless killer of a mother and her child. The police were having a hard time determining why there were two methods of death. If the killer had a gun, why beat the victim to death? Trooper Kosovar thought he might have an answer. He worked a similar case where the victim was also shot once and then severely beaten. In that case, the gun jammed, thus causing the killer to resort to physical violence. All the evidence was sent to the PSP lab and examined by Dr. Thomas Jensen, the civilian consultant used in high-profile cases. Dr. Jensen had also processed the evidence in Joanne's care, using the odd method of post-it notes to collect hair. At the crime scene, the police recovered hundreds of hairs, but Dr. Jensen was only interested in eight of them. The six he recovered from the driver's headrest in Joanne's car, and two from the crime scene that seemed to match those in length color, and texture. The rest were referred to as, quote, forest litter. In comparing the eight hairs, Jensen noted a number of similar characteristics. All the hairs seemed to be darker at the base before turning blonde, indicating that this could be chemically treated hair. Because men rarely dyed their hair at the time, Jensen alerted police they could be looking for a woman. Concentrating on just six hairs taken from Joanne's car, Jensen separated them into two groups of three. He mounted three of them on glass slides and left the other three unmounted for later testing. All six hairs measured around eight inches in length with no visible roots attached. However, Jensen did see blood on some of them. The hair in Joanne's hand didn't match the six from the car, so Jensen paid it little attention, deciding to never test it. Despite the fact that it likely came from the person who attacked Joanne, didn't match the rest of the evidence and was therefore ignored by law enforcement. He also never photographed it or measured it or noted its color. Law enforcement collected sample from Joanne's husband, friends, and family members, but none of them were a match. Next, law enforcement tried to determine if Joanne or anyone she knew had a connection to the remote Heidelberg location where her body was found. Again, none was found. The police decided to drive Andy out to the location to see if he recognized the area. Andy glanced around, but nothing was familiar. He didn't know anyone in the area, nor did Joanne. Then suddenly, Andy remembered something. He did know a woman who used to keep horses in this area. She managed a stable nearby. He started giving the troopers directions to the stable, and then realized it was near the location where the bodies were found. When the troopers asked for her name... Andy told them they already had it. It was his ex-girlfriend, Patricia Rohrer, who had argued on the phone with his wife just three days prior to the abduction. The police had a viable suspect other than Andy. Patricia Rohrer, the alternate suspect. Andy first mentioned Patty on the 16th, stating she was an old girlfriend who, quote, Sometimes gets depressed and calls me. In fact, she was in one of those depressed states on December 12th when she called asking to speak with Andy. Joanne, irritated by these calls, got angry. Joanne told her that Andy was married now with a baby and her calls were unwelcomed before hanging up on her. At the time, the police thought this was a trivial motive. 
This was especially trivial because Patty lived out of state, North Carolina, more than 500 miles away. She'd moved back years ago, and her and Andy hadn't had a relationship in more than five years. In fact, she had never met Joanne, so she was quickly dismissed at the time. In light of the location of the bodies, they needed to give Patty a second look. Turned out that Patty's mother called six days after the disappearance of Joanne, returning a call made by Andy. The FBI conducted a phone interview and she alibied her daughter for them at the time. She had just spoken to Patty and confirmed she was home in North Carolina on the night Joanne and Alex were taken. Patty's mom, named Pat Chambers, told the FBI she knew Andy well because her daughter and Andy lived together for many years. Patty described Andy as someone who could have a bad temper but was basically a decent person and capable of hurting anyone. The two had remained friendly, even after they had broken up and kept in touch through letters and phone calls. Pat explained they had remained friends up until a month ago when Joanne got angry and told Patty not to call anymore. Pat said Patty intended to never call again. When FBI asked Pat Chambers to speculate on Joanne's disappearance, she was very happy to oblige. She stated her daughter had lived with Andy for over five years and never used birth control and had never gotten pregnant. Neither of Andy's other living girlfriends had gotten pregnant either. Andy told them he was unsure if he could father children. Pat speculated that Alex wasn't Andy's biological child and that Joanne left to go be with the real father of her baby. Infidelity can be a strong motive for murder, so it looked like Andy was back to being suspect number one. The PSP didn't consider Patty a suspect at the time and wanted her to help in trying to build a case against Andy. The next day, FBI agents in North Carolina visited Patty for a formal interview. It was casual and all aimed at Andy. The official assignment from the Pennsylvania FBI was to quote, determine if Patricia Rohrer had any knowledge of Andy Katrinak's ability to conceive children and also determine her opinion regarding his potential for violence. Although it was obvious the FBI were there to build a case against Andy, the conversation had a casual tone. This was only a week after abduction, so a hindsight interview would have gone very differently. Patty recalled Andy telling her he didn't want kids. Neither Patty nor her mother, Pat, could imagine Andy being capable of harming his wife and child. Patty did recall two instances of violence where, once, Andy pushed her down on a bed and, another, when he attempted to backhand her, but she blocked him with her leg and injured her finger instead. Patty admitted to the phone conversation with Joanne, but said it wasn't on the 12th of December. It was actually the week before on the 7th of December. When asked about her alibi the day of the 15th, Patty told law enforcement she bought grain for her horses, stopped at a local gas station, and went dancing at a club. Unfortunately, since Andy was the main suspect at the time, they did nothing to confirm this alibi. Four months later, they would regret that decision. While there was no evidence that a woman was involved in this crime, there certainly wasn't any evidence that a woman couldn't be involved in the crime. And this woman, well, this woman happens to be six feet tall, is a professional barrel racer, and runs a horse stable where she regularly lifts bales of hay and large bags of grain. This woman also was familiar with Katasakwa, the front street house, and rode horses regularly in the remote area where the body was found. Also, only days before the abduction, Joanne yelled at Patty, told her to stop calling her house, and hung up on her. Suddenly, Patty just became a viable suspect. Listener well, we all know the established cliche that the husband is the one who did it. In this case, could Andy really be trying to find the real killer? 
We'll have to journey together and see if justice has been served, because this story may have a different outcome. Here's where part one ends. I hope you're enjoying the longer format. A lot of time and funding has gone into expanding the show. I think that wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.